And God has given us the roadmap of how to actually have peace and harmony in the home from a Christian point of view. So that's the series we're looking at. How do we do that? God's given us the solution. We talked about the role of the wife. We've talked about for two weeks the role of the husband. And today we conclude the role of the husband. Three parts to the husband because the husband was dealt with in verses 25 all the way through 33. And we're going to summarize the role of the husband. And, uh, you know, Dr. Phil McGraw, the, I don't know if you know who that is, but he's very well-known, popular, famous psychologist. He's a secular psychologist on television, has his own TV show. Actually, it's on several times during the week. Very popular um, in a radio program. And he's a best-selling author. And Dr. Phil McGraw's specialty is solving marital and family problems. Uh, he's the good doctor, they say. And a lot of people are looking to him. And one of the reasons he is so popular is because, theoretically or apparently, he has answers to the problems that nobody else would necessarily have or even think of. So he has this kind of secret, esoteric, hidden, specialized knowledge to solve all these various problems that happen in family and in relationships. Sometimes it's very complicated, and sometimes you're just kind of waiting to see what is Dr. Phil going to pull out of his hat to solve this problem. And then he'll say it, and you think, well, I never would have thought of that. How did Dr. Phil come up with that? That was amazing. Well, really, it's not supposed to be so amazing because God isn't that complicated. And that's one thing I wanted to highlight as a major theme in dealing with the family is uh, God's solutions and suggestions for solving marriage problems and family living problems isn't complicated at all. It's very simple. God distills it down in his infinite wisdom to just simple commands that can be comprehended very easily and, and remembered very easily. And so one of the imperatives that was so simple to being a godly, virtuous, wonderful, spirit-filled wife in the home that's going to bless your husband and your children and the rest of the family was simply, then wife, submit to your husband. That was it. That's all Paul had to say. That's all God had to say. So simple. And then the same thing with husbands. Husband, do you want to get along with your wife? Do you want to be a godly husband? Do you want to bless your wife? Do you want to please God? Do you want to obey Christ? Do you want to bring harmony to your home? It's real simple, husband. Focus on one thing, that is, husband, love your wife. And that's what this passage is about from 25 to 33. This one command. Godly or Christian husband, love your wife. And look at verse 25 uh, in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. That's it. Verse 28. He goes on, so husbands ought also to love their own wives. He says it two times with some explanation and an illustration. And then look at how he concludes his exhortation to husbands, verse 33. Nevertheless, let each individual husband among you also love his wife. Three times, and it's the same command, the same imperative, the same priority. Husband, this is, this is simple. God's making it easy for us so we don't have any excuses. Getting it through our thick head. You want to be a godly husband, then husband, love your wife. And then Paul gives details as to how you can actually do that and what the model is, and so that's what we're looking at. So this is part three of how a husband is to love his wife in a way that pleases God. The first week we just simply looked at that imperative. Husband, love your wife as Christ loves the church. He is the model and example. And the next week we talked about husband, love your wife the way Christ does by sanctifying the church. So it was husband, sanctify your wife, be the spiritual leader. And then this week, a little different nuance or theme Paul has about how to love your wife the right way. And that's the title there of the sermon today. It's Husband, Cherish Your Wife. Husband, love your wife 
by cherishing your wife. And that's what I want to talk about. What does it mean to cherish your wife? But that's what Paul commands us to do. So let's go ahead and look at Ephesians. Follow along with me as I read Ephesians 5, starting at verse 28 down to verse 33, concluding this section about how a husband is to love his wife in a godly way. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. That's key. As you love your own body. The one who loves his own wife loves himself. Verse 29. For no one, no person ever hated his own flesh. No person ever hated his own body, but rather nourishes and cherishes his body. Cherishes his body. Just as Christ also cherishes or nurtures the church. Verse 30. Because we are members of Christ's body. As the Old Testament says. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two, husband and wife, shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Christ is also one with his church, as a husband and wife are one with each other. Verse 33, the conclusion, Nevertheless, let each individual husband among you also love his own wife, even as he loves himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. This is so rich. There is so much here uh, that we could go on and on, but I just want to highlight uh, the main points that Paul is making in his argument here from God, and that is simply in this passage from 28 to 33. Christian husband, love your wife and do it by cherishing your wife. Cherish your wife. That's all Paul's trying to say here. And I want to emphasize two words that Paul uses here to tell us how to cherish our wives, and they're found in verse 29. What does it mean to cherish your wife? Uh, well, by nourishing your wife, and that word literally, by cherishing your wife. He uses those two words very specifically. And that's how we are to nurture or take care of our wives. But those two words are going to dominate here. And we're going to look at those. By the way, uh, as we started this series back in Ephesians 5.22, when I started with that sermon on wives submit to your husbands, that has been generating some comments and questions by the saints. And I knew it would. I anticipated that. I've been thinking about it for a year. Boy, I wonder what's going to happen when I get to Ephesians 5.22 and following. It's where the rubber meets the road. Man, this is family life. This is reality. This is in the trenches of living day to day, 24 hours a day. I wonder what's going to happen. Well, I found out what happens. Lots of questions. And it's been good. It's been very healthy. Uh, some verbal questions. I've been getting some in email um, and what I wanted to do was encourage all of you, if you do have questions along the way, we're, we're going to generate more questions than you can imagine when we get to parents and children and parenting. Um, I want you to write, don't forget your question. Don't let your question go unasked either. Don't just keep in silence and sit on it. You need to ver verbalize your question. You need to ask your question because God's word has an answer. And I've been getting some um, from all ages, from teenagers, the youth, um, married people, single people. It's been wonderful. Great dialogue. And I've actually started writing these down, all these questions, because they need to be answered and they need to be addressed. And so what I was going to encourage you to do, if you have any questions, just keep emailing them to me directly. And I'm going to catalog all these. And I want to spend a lot of time answering these very specific uh, case scenario situations uh, of family living and see how God's word complements that. So uh, don't hold back on your questions, but uh, the more I have, the better, because I'd really like to address those issues for our families here. God wants us to have answers from his word on specific situations. Uh, but let's go on. Go ahead and look at your handout there. And really, there's just two main points and then a summary statement. The two main points I want to make today, if you look at those, is Roman numeral number one, husbands are to nurture their wives. 
And then Roman numeral number two is husbands are to show tender affection to their wives. That's Paul's emphasis here. So let's go ahead and look at the first one. Husbands are to nurture their wives. Um, And I put their letter A, by providing for your wives practical needs. That's what Paul says here. Husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes. There's the key word right there. To nurture. To nourish. Nourish your wife. How do you do that? The same way you love your own body. The same way you love yourself. And literally, Paul uses the word for body or your flesh here. Your actual body he's talking about. This is very practical. You know, the first reason he gave to love your wife was as Christ loved the church. That was quite grandiose and idealistic. It's the perfection Standard of perfection, really. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Well, man, how can I do that? Christ was sinless. Christ loved perfectly. Christ never made a mistake. He fulfilled everything that God required. I can't possibly do that. I'm I'm sinful. So Paul gets real practical here. Okay, well, I'll give you another example. Uh, Love your wife the way you love your own body. It's not love your wife the way you love yourself. It's love your wife the way you love your body. Literally uses two words. Soma is a Greek word. For body, that's verse 28. Your physical body. The way you love and take care of your body is the same way you should love and take care of your wife. Then he uses another word that's a synonym a little later on. As you love your own flesh, verse 29. Sarks, flesh. Literally emphasizing again, this is not self, the immaterial self. This is your body. And believe me, we all take care of our own flesh and our own body, don't we? We give it regular ongoing attention. That's Paul's point there. Now look at the notes I put in there for this word in verse 29 where it says we're supposed to take care of our own wife the way we do our own body or our own flesh first by nourishing her because we nourish our own body. And the word nourish there, I put it down there, is a Greek word that Paul uses. This word is used 19 times in the Old Testament Greek translation and almost always in reference to rearing, bringing up children, or even to nurse a child with the emphasis on providing for all of their needs. Caring for your wife, meeting all of the practical needs of your wife, is the point. Uh, This word is used only twice in the New Testament. uh, Here and in Ephesians 6.4, where it refers to fathers or parents who rear their children. So look at Ephesians chapter 6. That's kind of interesting. Look at verse 4. Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, really parents... Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. That's the exact same word in chapter 6, verse 4, as in 29, where it says nourish. So you could use, it's the same word. You could translate it literally the same way in English. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but rather nourish them or bring them up or rear them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So going back to chapter 5, verse 29. Husbands, take care of your wives, love your wives. How? By nourishing, bringing up, cherish, or uh, taking care of. Nourishing, same word. That's kind of interesting. But the emphasis is what is important. The emphasis is on taking care of all of their practical needs, providing an environment whereby they can grow to full maturity. They have everything they need. They have all the essentials because that's what parents are supposed to provide for their children. All the essentials so that they can grow completely whole in every area of life with specific emphasis on the practical needs of life. And the physical needs of life is what Paul is getting at here. A parent who nurtures a child taking care of their basic needs to live a growing, healthy life. And so is the mandate of a Christian husband. He is supposed to take care of, rear, provide for 
his wife so that she can grow in every area of life in a healthy way and on a practical level. Uh, Suggested translations of this word that Paul uses here, nurture, care for, provide. Here's where we get one of the ideas that the husband is the provider of the home. He is the main provider, first and foremost. That is by God's design as the leader of the home. The husband is to be the provider for his wife. One translation translates it feed. I think that's the NIV, husbands, as Christ feeds the church. And as you feed your own body, so also you're supposed to feed your wife or meet the most basic needs for her nourishment, for her growth. Another translation just says nourish. Uh, So implication here. Husbands, give your wife all the necessary resources she needs so that she can do her job fully to the glory of God. That's how you nourish your wife. Care for your wife. Nurture your wife. Providing for her practical needs. Uh, so that she has enough money to do her job. She has enough food to do her job. As wife and as mother. Uh, that she has the necessary transportation. That she's taken care of in that area. Uh, that she has the proper clothing for her, the whole family, for the children. That she has proper rest and physical uh, recuperation that she's going to need to carry on. So it covers all of these areas. I put also in there that she has the proper tools to do her job. Now, if she is a wife, she's married, and especially if she has children, and then uh, Titus chapter 2 says that the main domain of the wife and the mother is the home. She is the queen of the home. That is her domain. And if that's true, then she has tools where she needs to fulfill her mandate as the queen of the home. That's what Paul says, that wives or mothers are to be workers at home, or literally keepers of the home, taking care of the home, managing the home in a detailed, hands-on way. That's her job and responsibility, and the husband is supposed to facilitate her ability to do that, to manage the home. Let's get real practical here. That means that the husband is responsible for making sure that the wife has everything she needs in her home to take care of them. A vacuum cleaner that works. How about a garbage disposal if you have one? You know, that's actually a luxury, a garbage disposal. Uh, but anyway, if you have one, it better work. And as the head of the home, you better provide it for your wife or help her or give her the money to hire a handyman to get it done. I mean, I could get going and get real practical and convict all of you husbands as you're slouching down in your pew. I know I can do that. But I'm impugning myself as well. This is a great reminder of our responsibility as the leader of the home, provider of the home, supposed to be nourishing, nurturing our wife and taking care of her practical needs. It's our job. It's why God gave us to her, one of the reasons. And this is accentuated when I think about when we are dealing with a widow who was married and had a husband at her side to do this her whole life. And then when he's not there, I've seen this, or that void is there, they need that help. That's where the church is supposed to step up and fill in and meet the needs of widows. And that's what the book of James talks about. But this is a basic requirement and mandate from men and husbands. Your honeydew list. So wives, you have every right to write down your honeydew list and put it on the refrigerator of the 74 things that need done around the house so that you can do your job. And posting it in the bathroom and in the kids' room and on every door in the house and on the windshield of the car at times to get the point across. I know I'm getting too practical. But anyway, that's what it means, really. To nurture, to nourish, to take care of the practical needs of your wife. And it's a blessing to do so. So husbands, you're to nurture your wives by providing for her practical needs. And then secondly there, uh, well, how do you do that? As you nurture your own body. That's what Paul says. That's his argument there. That's the spiritual theological reason 
nourish your wife on a practical level. How, Paul? And he gets very specific. The way you love your own body, the way you take care of your own body, the way you nurture your own body, the way you provide for your own body. Think about it. What's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning is you're totally focused on self, aren't you? And your body. Man, I'm tired. I need more sleep. And then you get up out of bed and then you're immediately taking care of your body. You're brushing your teeth. You're feeding your body breakfast or whatever else. You're putting clothes on your body. You're grooming your body. It's all about you, 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 me, me, me. Right? Focus is on self. Our body. We love ourselves. We are looking out for ourselves. We are protecting ourselves. We're taking care of ourselves. Always and constantly. You know? Uh, and that's how we're supposed to love and care for and take care of our wife. Looking out for her needs in the same practical way. How do we take care of our bodies? I just put down some words. Uh, naturally. We do it naturally, don't we? Taking care of our own body just comes naturally. Well, husbands, it's supposed to come natural at some point. Develop a natural habit where you're taking care of your wife in the same way. It becomes habitual. It's an ongoing, regular thing. Even after 15 years of marriage, it should be. Maybe after 20 years of marriage, it should be. 40 years of marriage, it still should be a habit and an ongoing thing. And we need a shot in an arm to be reminded about this as husbands and wives, don't we? Uh... Take care of your own body. It's, it's unconditional, isn't it? There are no conditions. I'm going to take care of my body no matter what, no matter how I feel. Whether I'm sick, whether I'm tired, whether I'm in a good mood, no matter where I am, it's unconditional. My care for my body. I'm looking out for me first. Fastidiously. That means in a detailed, comprehensive manner. You get a scratch on your toe, you're attending to it. You're taking care of every need. We need to do the same thing in care of our, of our wives. That's what Paul's talking about. And after all, Paul goes, gives another argument. He says, after all, your wife is part of you. She is you. If you got the day you got married, God pronounced you one flesh. Literally, you are one. The way Christ is one with the church. Your wife is literally part of your own body. Take care of her. And if you're taking care of your wife who is one with you, you are taking care of your own body. You're taking care of yourself. It's in your best interest to take care of your wife. That's his whole argument there, why he quotes from Genesis chapter 2. Your wife is one with you in every conceivable way. We looked at that last week. The two shall become one flesh. So that's how we're supposed to do it. Taking care of a wife, nurturing her at a very practical level. And then uh, the last reason, uh, example there is as Christ does the church. Christ is one with the church. Christ is engaged to the church. Christ is marrying the church. Sam read about the culmination of the wedding of Christ with the church and the beautiful day that's going to be in the future. And from beginning to end, Christ is always and forevermore nurturing His church, practically taking care of His church, not just in a spiritual, unseen, theoretical way, but on practical ways God is taking care of His church, His people, and His saints. We heard about prayers this morning that Sam was praying for. God answering very specific prayers, healing people, providing for their needs financially. From the day Christ created the church, or actually from the day He elected it to the day He gave it birth, and as He's building the church, Christ is taking care of the needs of the church in a practical way. God has given us a facility as a local church to meet in. That's a practical need, a huge one, but very practical that He met on behalf of us as His church and as His saints. Meeting our needs every step of the way. He is the model. He is the example that husbands are to follow. So husbands, let's continue to nurture our wives take care of them, nourish them on a practical level as God has commanded us to do. Now I want to look at and emphasize that second word that Paul uses in verse 29. If you look at there, no one ever hated his own flesh or his own body, but rather he nourishes it 
takes care of it, and he cherishes it. He cherishes his own body. We do. We cherish our own physical body. And that talks the emphasis there is on physical care and maintenance of our physical body. And look at the specific word. I want to read that, this word for cherish, because it's, it's very indicative. helps us really understand what Paul's talking about. The word for cherish here that Paul uses, Greek word that means literally to heat or to warm. Husband, warm your wife. Present tense, regular, ongoing way. And can so be translated, comfort your wife, cherish your wife, warm your wife. It's a word that's used in the Greek Old Testament very specifically. Very interesting of how it is used. In the Old Testament, it's used in Deuteronomy 22.6 of a mother bird sitting on her eggs. What is she doing? She's warming her eggs. She's taking care of her eggs. She's also protecting her eggs. But literally, there's that nuance of warming Guarding. That's what husbands are supposed to do with their wives. Guarding, protecting, warming, taking care of. Uh, it's also used in 1 Kings 1-2 where King David's servants, they're trying to keep him warm. He's about to die. I think he's in his 70s and he's in bed and he's a bunch under a heap of covers and he can't get warm. He's just freezing and shivering. And they're trying to warm him on a very practical way. That same word is used, to warm him. Boy, how are we going to warm King David? That's the way it's being used there. Taking care of somebody who has a specific need, very practical way, by providing warmth. Uh, Job 39.14. It's referred uh, in reference to a mother stork who lays her eggs in warm sand. Once again, the emphasis on warming because it needs that to be protected and to take care of. And then in 1 Kings 1.4, of the young woman who cared for the elderly King David, literally keeping, uh, keeping him warm and meeting his needs on a very practical level. That's how that word is used. B, in the New Testament, this word for cherish is used only here and also in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 where it describes the Apostle Paul's warm and tender affection he gave to the church. And that, that word for affection is key to this word for cherish. Affection. Tender affection. Gentle. Tender, warm affection. Husbands, you're supposed to be gentle with your wives. You're supposed to be affectionate with your wives. That's the whole point. Tender and affectionate. The Apostle Paul says, We were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. Caring, cherishing for her little children. How does a mother care for her little children? Well, if she's standing up and it needs care, she's holding it, right? Keeping it warm and rocking it. That's tender affection. That's how Paul describes himself ministering to the church with tender affection, cherishing the saints. That's how husbands are supposed to treat their wives, with tender affection, cherishing them. So to cherish is to give tender affection, warmth, comfort, protection, and security for the wife. Well, what are the practical implications of that? Well, husbands, we're supposed to cherish our wives, I said, primarily in two ways. Verbally, we're supposed to cherish them with tender affection. And also physically, we're supposed to cherish them with tender affection. Just some uh, examples out of the Bible of how husbands are supposed to cherish with tender affection their wives verbally with the mouth, with our words. Words are a powerful thing, aren't they? Words can tear people down. Words can build people up. Words penetrate to the heart. 1 Peter 3.7, Paul reminds husbands uh, to treat their wives with tender affection. And he says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Be knowledgeable of them as females as your partner and be knowledgeable and aware and in tune 
acutely aware of them by how you talk to them with your mouth and the words that you use. Your words have an impact on your spouse and on your wife. Words make a difference. So live with them in an understanding way, verbally, with affection. Uh, put away these things, Ephesians 4.31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. That's for every Christian. Just in every relationship, we're supposed to put those things away. But particularly in the marriage relationship and in the home, get rid of it. Put it away. Bitterness, rage, and anger. That's the way you talk. And it flows out of the heart of anger and bitterness towards your spouse. That's what the Bible says. Proverbs 15.1. This is a great verse. This is a great marriage verse. To help preserve unity and harmony in your marriage relationship, Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer... Tender affection. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Did you know some arguments can be avoided? If you're thoughtful, prayerful, strategic. That's what that verse implies. Proverbs 12:25. An anxious heart weighs a person down, but a kind word cheers him up. You know, a kind, tender, affectionate word can make all the difference in somebody's day. From the time they wake up in the morning, first thing they hear, an encouraging, kind, uplifting word can make all the difference. That's how we should be treating our wives. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, look at this, encourage one another. And he's talking about verbal encouragement here is what the emphasis is on. This is a command. Encourage one another, present tense. In a regular, ongoing manner, encourage verbally one another in the Lord. This, you know, and this is a blanket command to all of the church, to every Christian, to every saint. But where does it need to be mastered and start? In the home with the marriage relationship if you are married. You're not going to be good at encouraging other saints or sincere or legit if you can't even do it at home in your own relationship with the pride priority relationship that God has made if you're married and that is with your spouse it's the priority relationship it comes before your children it comes before ministry it comes before the church it comes before evangelism it starts with your spouse verbalize to one another encouraging words notice that build up that edify literally is what the word is that build up like a house that's where the verb comes from constructing systematically intentionally a house a building for God's glory And that's what you do to the human soul when you use words that encourage verbally. Verbal encouragement. So just, here's the homework assignment. Today, don't even think about the rest of the week, but just today, especially if you are married, for a homework assignment, just try to say something encouraging that is legitimate, that is sincere, that is personal to your spouse today at home. So they might be edified or encouraged and try to refrain from anything that tears them down whether it's bitterness, rage, uh, unnecessary criticism, don't do that. Which brings us to Galatians 5.15. Look at this verse. Talk about a marriage verse or a very important one. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, and this is talking about the way you interact with one another verbally. If you keep on biting and devouring each other by attacking each other verbally, watch out. This is a warning. You will be destroyed by one another. You're going to devour one another. You know, you can literally tear your marriage down. That's what Proverbs says. A wise woman builds her house up. A foolish woman rips her own house down. Not just with her own hands, with her own tongue. If it's used the wrong way. Words are powerful. And Paul says, man, you know what? If you keep biting at one another and pestering one another and uh, after each other, little by little, you're going to poison your relationship. You're going to poison your friendship. You're going to spoil it. 
You're going to subtly corrode the intimacy in your relationship. This is just with words. And eventually you're going to undermine your marriage relationship. And ultimately you may very well destroy your marriage relationship just through the way you talk to each other. Um, Charles Stanley, I have respect for Charles Stanley. He's a pastor in Atlanta and been at the same church for years and years uh, and a good Bible teacher and a man of God. But he, and it was hit the world in the news about 10 years ago when his, it became public that he separated from his wife and then eventually their marriage uh, dissolved into divorce. And that was after 34 years of marriage. 10 years ago. I think about that a lot. Wow, how can such a man of God who loves the Word of God, who's such an excellent teacher, how can that happen to his marriage? Well, I don't know how it happened in his life, but... Here's one way it can happen. It can happen subtly, little by little, over time. That's how Satan works. Very subtly, very slowly, very incrementally. And we almost don't notice it. Like the frog in the pot, as the water heats little by little by little until he's boiling and he's dead because the temperature was going up so slowly he didn't even notice it and he boils in it. So that's just a warning for all of us that uh, we have got to guard against this happening in our own relationships and especially in our own marriages and in our own families. Otherwise, you will devour one another with your mean words. That's the negative. The positive is cherishing, speaking with tender affection to your wife. Uh, Song of Solomon is a great book for married couples. As a matter of fact, in all of the Bible, out of the 66 books of the Bible, I believe God gave us the Song of Solomon in eight chapters for married couples because that's what it's all about. It's not an allegory. It's true history. It was a godly man and a godly woman who are married and they have really a godly relationship and that's why it was put down in ink for us to read, to be encouraged by, to follow. And even though the story is now 2,000, 3,000 years old, according to 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for us to learn from, we should be reading the Song of Solomon. If you, especially if you are married, to see the way this godly woman and this godly man who are sinners live together. And one of the things that just jumps out over and over again, especially if you've been married a long time, you know how when you meet and you date and you're engaged and you're all giddy and you're all happy and the other person, they never do anything wrong and they're perfect and you're just on cloud nine? Well, I know what that's like. And then you get married and sometimes the trend is after years and years because you've lived with one another, you don't appreciate one another as much as you used to and you've gotten uh, used to one another and also you learn things that maybe you don't like, some sins and shortcomings and idiosyncrasies and past uh, background and baggage they brought into the marriage that's taken away from cloud nine and now you're down onto about cloud three, cloud one. So it's a great way to be refreshed is go in and read the Song of Solomon and the affection that they talk to with each other mutually and particularly the husband who takes the lead. And I want to read some passages from the Song of Solomon. So if you want to keep your finger in Ephesians, but also flip back to the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament in the wisdom literature, so it's about in the middle of your Bible. But he speaks to his wife with tender affection. That's the way he cherishes her. He cherishes her verbally. It's almost embarrassing to read. But it's legitimate, it's biblical, and it's a model for us to follow, according to 2 Timothy 3.16. Just in chapter 1 alone, verse 15, he says, How beautiful you are, my darling. Isn't that romantic? You know, long before Shakespeare, there was the Song of Solomon. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. 
So he's, this is poetic way of expressing love to his spouse. And then she responds, verse 16, How handsome you are, my beloved. When was the last time you said that to your husband? And wife, when was the last time you said that to your wife? How beautiful you are. My darling, your eyes are like doves. So the way they talk to each other is just amazing. And the affection that they have for one another and how gentle and endearing it is. Uh, look at chapter 4, verse 1. I mean, this just oozes with... Uh, it's almost beyond... Description, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. I mean, that is romantic. That is a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth, look at that, verse 2. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins. In other words, she's not missing any teeth. And they're white. And not one among has lost her young. Your lips are like scarlet thread. By the way, if you follow this, it's amazing poetry. He starts at the top of the head. And he goes down. To the soles of her feet. Where was I? Verse 3. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the tower of David. Lean, strong, pleasing to look at. Built with rows of stones of which are hung a thousand shields. All the round shields of the mighty men. So he starts at the head, the eyes to the mouth, to the neck. So anyway, that's the Song of Solomon. Um, let's go. keep going. You can read the rest on your own, by the way, for your own edification, particularly those of you that are married. Just a beautiful biblical example of how to cherish your wife verbally. So we're to cherish our wives verbally with tender affection, but also we're supposed to cherish them physically. Let's look at some verses. I've typed many out so you don't have to flip through the Bible. Husbands, you need to cherish your wife physically. With, and I'm talking here about in, physical intimacy. Sexually, in other words, is what I'm talking about. But the Bible addresses this very specifically. And one thing that amazes me about Scripture that I think we need to take note of is even when it talks about physical intimacy at the deepest level is the beautiful language that is used. And usually it is poetic language, which God is guarding the sanctity of intimacy in marriage, not using crass terminology or even medical terminology. It's euphemistic language protecting the sanctity of marriage in an appropriate manner. And you'll see that in all of these verses because that's the context of all of these verses is about physical intimacy between husband and wife at the most intimate level. Enjoy, He says in Ecclesiastes 9.9, Husband, enjoy life with your wife. Enjoy life! Enjoy your wife! This is his emphasis here. Enjoy your wife! What a good reminder we need, don't we? How long have you been married? Do you still enjoy your wife? Enjoy your uh, life with your wife whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. Man, your life is going by like that. Life is a vapor, which God has given you under the sun. God gave you your wife for you to enjoy. For this is your reward in life. That's one of the rewards. If you're not enjoying your wife, you're missing out on a basic reward designed by God. This is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Physical intimacy. Proverbs 5 and 18, that whole context is intimate, detailed, physical intimacy. Here I just give an excerpt. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Present tense, ongoing. 
day by day, on a regular basis, as a loving doe and a graceful deer. The imagery there is something you are very gentle and endearing with. That's how you're supposed to deal with your wife in a physical manner as well. And it goes on again to describe the, the very anatomy of your wife as you enjoy your wife on a regular basis. Ecclesiastes 3.5, there is a time to embrace, isn't there? Husbands and wives, there is a time to be physical with one another and enjoy each other with physical intimacy as God designed. Some of the greatest men of the Bible did it. Think of one of our patriarchs, Isaac, Genesis 26, 8. Very interesting verse that kind of pops out of the story. And it came about when he had been there a long time that King Abimelech of the Philistines, he's looking out of his palace and he looks out the window and from a distance he sees something. And behold, what did he see? Isaac, the patriarch, the man of God, was caressing. He was smooching his wife out in public. Serious. Out there, they're probably holding hands and looking at each other and oh, smoochy, smoochy, kissy, kissy out in public. Totally appropriate. And the king is looking at this. Wow. I just thought that's a cool verse. Uh, Song of Solomon. Not only does it show verbal intimacy between husband and wife, but physical intimacy that is displayed for us to model, for us to appreciate, for us to value, for us to follow. She gets very specific here. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. From Song of Solomon. Goes on. Look at the imagery here. In Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 6. His left arm is under my head. Well, how do you do that? There's only one way to do that. That's if you're laying down side by side. They are laying down here. His left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me. That's physical intimacy. That's blessed by God. Everybody turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 is the most comprehensive and detailed section in the entire Bible about intimacy between husband and wife. And again, the Apostle Paul uses euphemistic language to protect the sanctity of marriage, not dragging it down into the gutter with crass language. So it's, again, it's poetic. You have to read by implication of what he's talking about, but I'm just telling you he's talking about physical intimacy between husband and wife. And the tenses of the verbs are very specific. They're all present tense. Ongoing, regular, habitual manner. This is how you're supposed to be relating to one another. By the way, it's reciprocal. The way husband and wife treat each other in their intimate relationship with one another physically. But because of immoralities, he starts in verse 2. Chapter 7, verse 2. But because of immoralities, or literally, but to prevent sexual immorality in your marriage relationship, the following should be a regular, ongoing Pattern in your life as husband and wife. That, that's the whole argument all the way down to verse 7. That is very important beginning of verse 2. To prevent sexual immorality for husband and wife. Do the following. Let each man, let each husband have, and that's sexually. Let each man, husband, have his own wife, present tense, in an ongoing manner. Keep having your wife, keep having your wife, keep having your wife. Physical, intimate, Deep, personal intimacy with your wife is what it's talking about. And it's reciprocal. And let each woman, let each wife keep on having her own husband in a physical way, in an intimate way. That is what it's talking about. Present tense, ongoing, regular pattern, routine in the marriage relationship. If it is not routine, you become susceptible to sexual immorality. Verse 3, he goes on, let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife. It is your duty. It is a responsibility, it is a mandate you have to meet the affectionate, intimate needs of your wife on a physical level, husbands. 
fulfill his duty. And likewise, also the wife is supposed to fulfill her duties to her husband and his needs and his physical intimate needs. And again, present tense, in a regular, ongoing manner. If you don't do it in a regular way, you become susceptible to Satan and immorality because he's going to bring up Satan in verse 5. Who is the tempter? He goes on verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body. She doesn't. You can't push your husband away. Either physically or in the heart. And the hus- But the husband does. Look at that. The husband has wi- authority over his wife's body. And likewise, notice again, it's a mutual reciprocal relationship in marriage between husband and wife. Likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body. Well, who has authority? The wife does. The wife owns you and your body. Your body is hers. You live for her. And again, it's talking about physical intimacy at the deepest level. And then just point blank, look at what Paul says in verse 5. This is, a, this is an imperative, a command. Stop depriving one another. Knock it off. Quit depriving your spouse with physical intimacy. Don't do that. That is damaging. That is dangerous. He's going to tell us how dangerous it is. Stop depriving one another. Except by agreement. So any time you abstain, it has to be by mutual agreement understood between husband and wife. It has to be mutual. And for very specific reasons. For a time. And the Greek word, for a very short period of time. And it has to be short. Otherwise, oh, in order that you might devote yourselves to prayer. That's one legitimate reason. Maybe you're doing fasting for a day or two, one of you is, and the other honors that. So there's mutual agreement to why you abstain. But then he says it's a short time, and then come again to, uh, together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of sexual self-control, is what he's talking about. Very important, very practical, and then he goes on to talk about that between husband and wife. So the point is, undergirding what Paul says in Ephesians, that Husbands, you need to, with regular, ongoing, systematic, in a systematic way, keep on giving your wife the nurture, the affection, the cherishing that she needs at the most basic physical level so that she might be fulfilled, so that she might feel your love emotionally and physically, and also that you might protect her and protect your own purity is what he's talking about. So that's the ideal. That is the biblical ideal that we're supposed to shoot for. Well, it doesn't always happen that way for a lot of different reasons, right? Life is tough. We get busy. We got children. We got problems. Then we also have sin. And that's why that brings us to letter D there. Uh, Protect your friendship with your spouse. Husbands, protect your friendship with your wife from the destructive little foxes. What do I mean by the little foxes? Well, in the context of the Song of Solomon, those eight chapters, and their physical intimacy and their verbal intimacy, he throws a verse in there that's kind of interesting. Uh, in Song of Solomon 2.15, he says, Catch the foxes for us. Foxes were little animals that go around, especially uh, among grape, uh, grapevines, and eat the grapes and destroy the crop. And they're little, and you've got to try to catch them and get them out of there, those varmints, because they'll eat all of your grapes and destroy your harvest. And they had those in Solomon's day. And he said, uh, Catch the little foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards, while our vineyards are in blossom. And what he's talking about is their relationship with one one another as husband and wife. Or they're about to be husband and wife. And these little foxes are things that enter into their friendship, enter into their relationship. They're little. They're little things that come in. Little intrusions into your relationship. Maybe a little grievance. uh, Something that you're holding on to that happened a long time ago and it wasn't even a big deal. It was a little sin. Or a little... Maybe it wasn't even a sin. Maybe it was just something you didn't like. 
And it wasn't even necessarily a moral issue and you've allowed it to come in like a fox to get in between in your relationship with your spouse and start tearing away at the marriage relationship. And he says, you have got to guard against these little foxes that intrude in the marriage relationship that eventually and inevitably can destroy your marriage. I know this firsthand because I've told you. I've done biblical counseling for married people, and I still do. Not that I'm the expert marriage counselor, but people do come to me and want to see what the Word of God has to say relative to their marriage relationship. And of the years I've been doing it, I'd say almost 99% of the time, bottom line of the problems that are affecting the marriage relationship and destroying it and tearing it down and even bringing it to rock bottom started with little foxes. They weren't a big deal. Little things that were crept in, many times unnoticed. You've got to deal with these little things. They've been eaten away at your relationship. And now it's just been unwound to the point of almost destruction. So guard against the little foxes. That's the best thing that a newly married couple can do because you're, you're establishing habits. Guard against those little foxes. They matter. They could come back to haunt you. So first identify them. And then uh, some attitudinal things you need to practice. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and yet don't sin in your anger. So be angry for the right things in your marriage relationship. And if you are angry and you're angry the wrong way, don't sin in your marriage relationship. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's uh, That's a little fox that you need to do in your marriage relationship. Don't hold a grudge against your spouse and then go to bed without reconciliation or forgiveness. Don't do that. Do not hold on to bitterness. Do not hold on to a grudge. If you do, it will just grow. It will grow and it will worsen and you will get a hardened heart. You will become bitter. And again, it could destroy your marriage. That's why he says that. Don't let the sun... Keep short accounts. Regular, ongoing forgiveness with your spouse. Uh, Colossians 3, 12 and 13. I remember when Debbie and I were first married and we had this wonderful lady that was a missionary and she's probably 70 or so and she worked with Jews for Jesus and she, she called herself Ruth with the truth. And she'd been single her whole life but she was a woman of God and had the Word of God memorized. And we were just brand new newlyweds and we met with her and she was a mentor and she said, Cliff, Debbie, let me read to you the marriage verse. Do you know the marriage verse? I said, uh, no. And I've never forgotten this. This was 15 plus years ago. And she read Colossians 3, 12 and 13 to us. Here's the marriage verse. Don't ever forget it. This will keep your marriage alive. If you neglect to do it, it will destroy your marriage. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, put on kindness, put on humility, put on gentleness, put on patience, bearing with one another. You know what that means? Tolerate one another. Put up with each other. That's what it says. Present tense. Forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint or a grievance against anybody else, just as the Lord Jesus forgave you, Christian. That's why I said that two people who are Christians should never get divorced ultimately. That's what God says. Because they both have the capacity to forgive the most heinous kind of sin. I'm not saying that Christians don't get divorced, but I'm saying... God is saying that the resources are there for it's supernatural forgiveness. Just as the Lord God or Jesus Christ forgave you, so also you should forgive others. Great marriage verse. So husband, cherish your wife. And then let's look at Paul's summary, which is really my summary. At the end of the passage there, go back to Ephesians chapter 5. Goes through telling husbands three times, love your wife, love your wife, love your wife. Lover as Christ loved the church. 
love her by sanctifying her and being the spiritual leader, and then finally love her by cherishing and nourishing her physically and meeting all of her practical needs. And then this summary statement to the whole paragraph, which includes the role of the wife and the husband in verse 33. Nevertheless, now he's talking to both husband and wife. Here's my summary statement. Here's the thing, simple thing you just need to remember in all of this to help your marriage continue to grow and thrive. Very simple. Verse 33. Nevertheless, let each... And now he gets specific because now it's a singular tense and not plural. Earlier he said wives, plural. Husbands, plural. Now he brings it down to the singular. Really bringing it home. Husband. So it's like he's pointing the finger. Christian husband. Christian wife, this is for you. Don't forget it. Nevertheless, let each individual husband among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. And notice the the new word that Paul uses there in verse 33. Uh, Because in verse 22, he said, wives are to be subject to their husbands. And here he says you need to respect your husband. You know, the Greek word is phobia. Fear, literally, you could translate it that way. Wives, fear your husband. And it's fear with a good connotation. Fear with respect. Fear with awe. The fact that God has put him as the head of your relationship is what it means. So that's the summary. So husbands, we need to love our wives and work on it continually with the grace of God. And wives, with the grace of God as a believer and the indwelling spirit who is in you, keep on working and pressing toward Submitting to your sinful husband and respecting him by virtue of the fact that God has put him at the head of your marriage and of your home. Let's go ahead and pray and ask God. Oh, and by the way, under um, at the very end, I just typed out, I wasn't even going to read those, but I just typed out for you for, to kind of help you summarizing everything, the main points that we've talked about throughout this entire series. And that's in the conclusion number four, A through I. So it'd be good to read through those. And if you're married, reading through those together as husband and wife and talking about those would be a very fruitful time for your marriage relationship and for a discussion there. Let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer and, and thank Him. Father, we do thank You for who You are. I thank You for the privilege today to, to come to the church, to be with the saints, to be with Your people, to gather together, to worship You through song, through prayer, through hearing Your Word, studying Your Word together. Thank You for Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, who died on the cross for sinners to absorb Your wrath for sin, that He rose again from the dead victoriously three days later. He went literally back into heaven where He came from, and He reigns on high today, and He hears our prayers, and He's even in our midst. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for that great truth and reality. And God, take these truths that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks about husbands, wives, and a a godly family, and those that are married uh, here in our church, that you would give us the grace um, and the empowering of your Holy Spirit to, number one, pursue these things and to fulfill them. And when we fall short, you'd soften our hearts so that we would be forgiving and that we'd have the perseverance to keep plugging ahead in obedience to you. We commit all these things to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.